You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 84. My guest today is Gary Kaut. Gary's coming on today to talk about his latest Netflix original documentary film, Fire in Paradise. I think we all know the story about this Northern California town that got devastated by wildfires this past year. And Gary's gonna talk about his experience around that. I've been in Ho Chi Minh City now a little bit over a month and everything's going great. I started a job and quit a job within less than 72 hours. All for good reasons, but I appreciated the opportunity, and out of that came a three-month business visa. But I heard today that it's possible that visas are going away here in Vietnam, potentially because of the coronavirus. So I don't know, I gotta check into this. There's all kinds of activity around that. I will be watching the news today to get an update, but I try not to get too caught up in the sensationalism of everything. Clearly, this is a little close to where I'm at, and I need to stay abreast of the situation. All schools in Vietnam have been closed for the past couple of weeks, and I don't believe they're scheduled to reopen again till April, which is obviously a huge burden on parents and them being able to do their jobs and run their businesses. This is all part of what's going on here in Southeast Asia. I'm 11,000 miles-ish away from home, but I've made a lot of friends and I'm having a really good time. The vegan food options are excellent and abundant. I'm enjoying the heat. The humidity's not bothering me. The people are sweet and it's really been an exemplary experience and I have no plans to leave in the near future. Everything in general is fantastic. Gary Lundgren's film, Phoenix, Oregon, is going to be released on March 20th nationally, which is very exciting. And he will have four showings in Los Angeles at Lemley Theaters. So if you want to check that movie out, which I highly recommend, go to phoenixoregonmovie.com. You can go to jomafilms.com or you can just Google Phoenix, Oregon, the movie. Let's get on with this fun show. Xin chào. It's like a giant penis in front of your face. Why do they have to make the shape so suggestive? It's kind of a phallic world, isn't it? It's a man-made world. True. You've got the Washington Monument. You've got the thing going on at the Vatican. Even in London, wherever there's a high concentration of wealth, there seems to be a giant dick somewhere close by. Hmm. Both in the flesh and in stone and steel. How are you, Gary Kaut? I'm good, Mark Ahrensberg. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thank you. This is night number three? Yes. Yeah. How's it been the first two nights? Nice. We have been lighting the candles and giving out some small presents. 
you went to your mom's new place on the first night? No, she came to my house. Oh, okay. How's she doing? She's doing okay. Yeah, she's settling in. She make any friends that she's spoken of yet? Yes. She's always been very social, and she is being very social now. We walk in, there's people in the lobby, she says hi to, we get in the elevator, she knows who people are, she's made friends with a woman down the hall, all in a very short period of time. Well, that's really good because this is when she needs people the most. And if you're in a good place, what a great transition having a whole new community available to you that you may not have had if you lived alone. Very true. Sometimes even though you have your independence, when there's no one right outside your door, you trade loneliness for independence. Yeah. You have your second Netflix original documentary film out right now. Your first one was Flint Town. And how did it do overall? And what has happened since then? When you guys were done with your project, they were still in turmoil and maybe still are, I'm sure to some degree, but has there been any follow-up to that? Well, there hasn't been any follow-up in the same way that we did, kind of a deep dive into what was going on in Flint. It still pops up in the news. The city is doing better overall. They are still dealing with the water issue. There are still pipes getting changed and replaced. And the city is still suffering from a decrease in the population, which of course translates into a decrease in the tax base, which just hurts the city. I don't know exactly how crime numbers are tracking or anything like that, but I'd say the good thing is that we're not hearing anything. We're not hearing anything major in the news. In terms of how Flint Town did, it was well received by the critics. And I still bump into people all the time who maybe didn't know that I worked on it and it comes up in conversation and they say how much they appreciated the information and found it very compelling. Of course, we struggle to phrase it in a way that you don't want to say like, enjoy watching it. It's a tough subject matter. Although I think there are parts in it that are enjoyable. When we dive into the lives of the police officers and we see them outside of work, or we see Dion having the baby and things like that. How it did numbers-wise, you know, they can say like, we're pleased with how it's doing. But you don't know hard well. numbers on it. We don't know hard numbers okay. on it. No. Does it matter? We're curious. A number that matters more is how many people saw it versus how many people started watching it and then watched the entire thing. And that's the amazing thing about streaming is they have all of that information. They know how far somebody got, when they stopped watching it, how long it took them to maybe get through it or pick it back up. And because also accounts are shared, multiple screens on one account, multiple people in the same family, it doesn't really give you a clear idea of how many people watched it. They can right. just tell you how many times it was watched and how much of it was watched. And they don't tell you any of that? No, not really. They're starting to change that a little bit. They are asking that it all stay confidential. It's kind of a for your eyes only FYI. And I think they do it because they know that filmmakers want to know these things. When you're making a decision to limit the distribution of your project you work so hard on and you gave so much of your life to, the old way was you made your project, you try to get it seen on different platforms, theatrical or television, and then you called up Netflix and said, hey, so this movie's been out for a little while, what would you guys pay? But now, so much goes straight to Netflix. 
It's either a Netflix original from the very beginning or at some point before it's finished, you make an agreement with a streamer or sometimes when it's totally done, you can get a better offer if you just say, just take it as an exclusive and we won't put it anywhere else. Right. And so it leaves the filmmakers very curious. Whether it's a good financial decision or not just depends on the economics of each project. But we all don't measure the success of our projects just by the financials. We measure it by how many people got a chance to see it and of course, what did they think of it. Netflix is doing all its own marketing. You don't really have to do anything. You kind of hand it over and the brand itself is so well known. It's it like if the project is good, people are definitely going to see it. A lot of people are going to see it because they do feature things too. So mm -hmm. they're master marketers. They are. They have a huge marketing department. They have a huge PR department and they have brought people in from lots of different entertainment sources, from the studios, from television networks, from Silicon Valley, because they're creating so much content. But they do choose which ones to put more towards. And they don't just do online marketing and whatever pops up on your personal homepage on your Netflix account based on your you know viewing history, of course. They do billboards, they do bus stops. Hey, they just spent $250 million on Scorsese's new movie, so they're in it to win it. Yeah. Fire in Paradise is the most recent Netflix original documentary about this horrible catastrophe, perhaps avoidable catastrophe that happened in California. It was one year and a little over a month ago. Decimated an entire community, 80 plus people perished in the fire, and none of this was about the cause. It was all about the effect, about the lives and the in the moment experience of what was happening to these people which is an absolute gripper. This is not a movie, although there were things added to help create the experience for the viewer super intense. And the only thing that I heard was, and I didn't agree with it, someone said it was a little too gory. I didn't see anything gory. You see a picture of a car with a burned skeleton in it. That's just a fact of the result of this catastrophe. And it almost doesn't look real, but of course you know it is real. Yeah. So that I think adds to that visceral reaction to it. It's one of the most dramatic and intense conveyances of an actual occurrence that I've ever seen. Well, thank you. That is definitely what we wanted to go for. We knew that the news and other documentaries and scientists and communities, governments, they'll be picking apart the campfire for a long time. They have to put policies into place to try to prevent something like that happening again. Or if something does start up again, how can they deal with it in a different way so that there's less loss of life and property? We realized early on as we started to explore what the documentary would be about, that living through and experiencing firsthand a massive event like that, a fast-moving, powerful, deadly, a 
post-apocalyptic wildfire is something that very few people are ever going to experience. Hopefully very few people will ever experience. But how can we really do everything we can? How can we work towards truly solving these problems if we don't really understand as well as we can what happens, what people go through? So we didn't want it to be an intellectual exercise. We wanted the film to be an emotional experience. Now we do go into the causes. We do reference the specific and immediate cause of the fire, which was the malfunction of the power line, the PG&E power line in the Polga area. And then we just dive into the fire itself. And for the next 25 minutes, we just wanted to put the viewer into the fires through the interviews of the people who lived through it and their footage and footage of other people who had lived through it. And then at the end, we start to unpack it a little bit where we talk about why the soil, if you will, was prepped for what happened. What were the additional criteria that were in place so that when the tower malfunctioned, when the power line malfunctioned, the fire became what it became. Because power lines malfunction a lot. And a lot of fires can be attributed to that kind of a thing. I mean, every fire has a cause, right? So why did this fire in particular become so huge and so deadly? And I think we unabashedly approach the idea of climate change. Hear that in the background? How appropriate. My father always says, well, someone's having a bad day. Yeah. We know that the film we made can be a trigger like that, too. I mean, there's tens of thousands of people who experienced the campfire. There are many more tens of thousands of people who've experienced the great many fires that have happened in just, you know, a few recent years. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel for those people. I could see it in their faces. We interviewed people within just a month or two of the fire happening. So everybody was still quite a bit in shock. Everybody was still trying to figure out how to move forward. People had lost their homes. People had lost their jobs. They were displaced. They were fighting with their insurance companies. They were trying to figure out where to put their kids in school. It was a mess. And these people very graciously gave us a little bit of their time in the middle of that and opened up their hearts and their stories to us. Filmmaking is about stories. Documentary filmmaking might not be a story that the filmmakers write themselves. It's about the stories that are out there and how can we uncover them and present them in the most effective way. And I hope we succeeded with Fire in Paradise. The 911 operator to me was one of the most compelling characters because to watch her begin to tell the story through a very professional attitude, mm -hmm. through just going through the motions of her work day, and then to watch her slowly break down close to the end of the movie where she just can't hold it together. It was really a transformation. She went through a transformation of going through the timeline of the occurrence 
the phone starting to ring and people making the briefest reports. And then you could see as it escalated to this incredibly intense experience that overwhelmed her, that finally consumed her like the fire consumed everything else. I just thought it was really well done. Thank you. the same people that you worked with on? Yes. Okay. And who is this group and how are you connected to these people who obviously make really incredible content? I do want to give them a shout out for sure. They are incredibly talented filmmakers. They're good friends. We've been working together now since 2011 and it's Dre Cooper and Zach Canapari. They have been creative partners for a long time since before I met them. They were making small documentaries that went under the banner, California is a place. They were both living in California. Zach now lives in New York City, but Dre is still in Oakland. So they made a series of short films that were very successful. They were Vimeo top picks. A couple of them went to Sundance and competed in the short film competition, but they were also building up towards a commercial career. So when I met them, it was doing TV commercials, but with more of a documentary style because that's their thing. So the first one I did with them was a Chevy commercial where we pushed a car out of a plane with parachutes and five skydivers with them, with the car. And that was pretty intense. This was a small Chevy Sonic, three cars, three jumps, all in one day. And then we did a follow-up Chevy spot, and that was about a muralist. We had this really amazing company that does a lot of robotics work in Oakland, create a painting robot embedded in the back of the Chevy Sonic and the painter and the car together make this mural. And then we started working for Apple, doing a lot of work for Apple, doing a lot of stories of experiences that people have had using Apple products in a way that has really changed their life for the better, really made an impact in their lives, as well as the people who make the devices or the apps that have helped these people. So we kind of show both sides of that. And they were continuing to make their independent documentaries as well. And one of them in particular, they kind of needed a little bit of help with because we were making commercials at the same time. So there was a lot of coordination to do between the different shooting schedules and travel schedules, and then just some details to help take care of. And that was their feature documentary, T-Rex, which is about a female boxer from Flint, Michigan, Clarissa Shields who won the gold in the 2012 Olympics. And after that, the next really big project was Flint Town because they loved Flint. They had developed a real connection to Flint. This is before the water crisis even, but they just thought that the town had so much heart. It had such an interesting history going from one of the most well-off communities in the country because of the strength of the automakers and the factories there to one of the poorest communities in America. And then when Flinttown was done, we went back to doing more documentary style commercials. Then we were talking to Netflix about some ideas that we had for another project. 
and the campfire was happening. And one of the people at Netflix that we were talking with, the creative executive producers there, asked, how was everything going up in Northern California? They were in LA, Dre was in Oakland. And Dre said, yeah, well, you know, the air is really bad here because of the campfire. It's all drifting over to the Bay Area and we're just getting choked out. Visibility is down, people are wearing masks. The fire had already destroyed Paradise and was now burning through the mountains and the, and the forest there. It burned for two weeks. November 8th, the day it started, is the day that it burned Paradise and then just moved on from there. Fortunately, there were no other big communities in its path. Chico is a bigger community and it's right down the hill, but fortunately the fire did not head in that direction. So while they're on the phone talking about potential other projects, everybody just sort of went, well, huh, what about something maybe about the campfire? What do you think? And I was like, yeah, what about that? It's not very far away. We can get up there in a couple hours. Why don't we go check it out? And Zach, ironically, was in New York, but he managed to get there first because it was right at Thanksgiving. And Dre got there the next day, and I got there the next day. And then we were there off and on for the next month and a half. Immediately, once we got there, it just blew our mind. We were not expecting it to be as bad. I mean, we'd seen the news, you know, you'd seen some of the follow-ups, but being there was overwhelming. And then we just kind of got to work, you know, doing what we do, which is figuring out a compelling and important way to get this story out there. And Netflix was with us every step of the way. theatrical premiere was at the Telluride Film Festival right around Labor Day of this year, which is a great place to premiere. It is a filmmaker-centric film festival. There's no sales agents there. There's not even any awards. They say that just getting into Telluride is the award. And we played alongside some amazing films, both shorts and feature films. And then after that, we showed at the Hamptons International Film Festival in New York. And they do awards, and we actually won Best Short Film. Not just Best Short Doc, which I thought was interesting, but actually Best Short Film. So narratives and docs. That was great. Don't remember the exact order anymore, but we screened at the San Francisco Docs Fest. We screened at Doc NYC, which is a major documentary film festival. We screened at the Mill Valley Film Festival, and that's actually where I got the idea for the screening here in Ashland, because at the Mill Valley Film Festival, the city brought out the fire chief and some of the city administrators to both introduce the film and then talk about fire awareness and fire safety after the film. Mill Valley is very much like paradise in that it's a city built in the woods. And I realized it's also very similar to Ashland, which is a city built in the woods. In fact, which wasn't lost on me earlier than that, I remember driving back from a trip to Paradise while filming 
and driving down the streets of Ashland and imagining them like the streets of paradise where everything is burned. And I don't mean it's like the structures have some black marks on them and some damage. They're flattened. These buildings are burned to the ground. Street after street after street of homes burned to the ground. Nothing is left except, of course, the chimney. The cars sitting out front burned, melted, tires melted, paint melted off. All the insides totally burned. Nothing left inside the car, just a husk. The commercial streets, fast food restaurants, gas stations, doctor's offices, grocery stores, burned. And the size of the community and the type of terrain, again, very similar to Ashland. So I would get back and I would have visions of Ashland looking like that and realized, yeah, that kind of thing has the potential to happen here. So the combination of sort of those thoughts that I had been having, being in Mill Valley, and knowing that the Ashland Independent Film Festival was interested in doing something, I was like, hey, why don't we do something that's like a community screening? Let's bring the fire department and let's turn it into more than just a screening. Let's make it an opportunity for the community to explore this issue and how it relates to us here. And that was great. So we did exactly that. We had the fire chief, we had the fire wildlife captain, and we had the communications director, and they all came and it was a packed house and there were some excellent questions and they imparted some really great information, which for your listeners here in Ashland, the good news is we actually aren't exactly like paradise. It would be unlikely that we would experience a similar kind of event. The other good thing is Ashland actually has one of the most fire-ready plans. Our fire preparedness is excellent. And other communities around the country actually reach out to Ashland and ask for help in setting up their own fire plants in the case of wildfires. Well, we've been choked out for five years in a row, and now we've had a couple years without, I think, or one. One. Yeah. Yeah. We're no stranger to the potential of fires, and we've had them close enough to us. I don't know if it was the Biscuit Fire, but I remember shortly after I moved here in 2002, ash raining from the sky. Yeah. So I know that we're susceptible, but it's good to know that we do not take that lightly at all. Yeah, we're almost more susceptible to the smoke from other fires. That is not to lessen what we need to do to stay aware and to stay ready. And a lot of that includes management of our vegetation, the fire breaks that exist in your neighborhoods, thinking about the plants and the trees that might be on your property. Now, nobody wants to live in a vegetationless town, but some trees are more flammable than others. Some shrubs are more flammable than others. Lavender apparently is very flammable because of the oils. You know, there was a whole store down here. Can you imagine if that place got on fire? I don't think you can plant lavender anymore in Ashland. Huh? If it's already there, it's one thing. But yeah, I don't think the city allows legally, technically, to plant lavender. So something like lavender, right? I mean, you don't think about lavender. No. Lavender is beautiful. It smells nice, right? People do put it close to houses and structures. Sure. The other problems of paradise was the evacuation issue. Not that the city hasn't practiced evacuation. Not that the city hasn't even had to evacuate before. They've had fires up there. It wasn't the first fire. 
It was the speed. They were running for their lives. Right. And you can't outrun a fire. You right. can hope that it skirts you or you can get into a structure and that happened a lot. I mean, there's so many stories we weren't able to tell, but you can dig in and you can find so many amazing stories. There's a feature film in the works actually right now by the director of Cartel Land, which is an excellent documentary about the Mexican-American border. He's making a narrative feature film about one of the stories that came out of Paradise. Absolutely incredible, mind-blowing story about a woman who had given birth that morning. And, uh, you know, her trying to survive and the people around her and trying to help her survive. That's nuts. Nuts. Ron Howard is coming out with a documentary, I believe some form of it is screening at Sundance in January, I've heard. And that's more of like a year-long study of what happens to a community after something like this. I'm sure it starts with plenty of intense fire stuff, and then it'll sort of track the progress and the rebuilding and people leaving, people returning, you know, the kind of that thing. Anyway, so I think there's much more to come. I mean, in some ways we were first out of the gate, although this is so strange. PBS Frontline also did a long, short doc. Our documentary is in the short category at 40 minutes. So it's actually 39 minutes and like 50 seconds. And over 40 minutes, it's considered a feature for festival and awards purposes. So we did want it to remain in the shorts category. So we did work to keep it just under 40 minutes. This other documentary by PBS Frontline comes out a week before our documentary aired on Netflix, and it was called Fire in Paradise. Oh my God, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. You know, the sad thing is you can't, and sometimes it works in your favor, you can't copyright a title. You can't? No, you can't copyright a title. That's why there's so many songs with the same title. There's books with the same title. Oh, I guess so. And there are movies with the same title. You can copyright the content, the story behind it. You know, if somebody rips off your story, and it doesn't matter if they give it the same name or not. I mean, I would assume they'd want to give it a different name, but realize it's the exact same story. So, yeah, so the content behind the title is what you can try to protect. Yeah. You know, the notes of the song, the beats and whatnot, but no titles, no. That being said, I don't think anybody wants confusion in the marketplace. And because our film premiered at Telluride in the end of August, and it was announced in the middle of August or early to middle of August, and nobody had heard about the PBS Frontline piece until like early October, maybe. I'm thinking they had to have had time to know that there was something else out there with the same title. And uh, maybe it's one of those like, you know, who blinks first, <laughs> who's gonna change their title. But hey, it works, right? Yeah. And um, I know people who've seen both and they appreciate them both. They present sort of a different way of looking at it. The PBS one, for example, is I think a little bit more of an intellectual approach and it's a little bit more journalistic versus ours, which is more experiential, more emotional. So we had the screening in Ashland. We had a series of screenings in Los Angeles. We had one with the AFI Film Fest and Chuck Todd with MSNBC came out from New York and was the moderator after that screening. We had a screening at the Independent Documentary Association in LA along with four other Netflix short docs. Most of which, including ours, have been shortlisted for an Academy Award. 
Right now we're in the semi-final round, wow. if you will. So 10 films get shortlisted in the category. And then on January 13th, five of those films will be officially the nominees for the best short doc. Please send me an email Oscar. in Vietnam about that. <laughs> I will. I'll be there two days <clears throat> when you find out. I will. So we're all a little bit on pins and needles, but we were talking about the support not just the financial support that filmmakers are getting from Netflix with this large amount of money that Netflix is willing to spend, but the creative support that they give in helping make each product the best that it can be. I mean, these are good filmmakers. They might work in an office now and they might have executive producer titles, but a lot of them came right out of the filmmaking world themselves. So they really have some great critical chops, creative chops, and they were an integral partner for us, we know, for Fire in Paradise turning out how it did. Four other Netflix documentaries are in that shortlist for the Oscars, and they're all excellent films. I urge everybody to see them. I mean, if you have Netflix, you can watch them now. After Maria, Life Overtakes Me, Ghosts of Sugarland, and Fire in Paradise. So four, four Netflix films are vying for contention. And that's a testament to the quality product that is coming out from Netflix. What's really great for filmmakers like us making documentaries, especially short documentaries, which are probably the toughest thing to find out where to see them, is that there is such an incredibly large potential audience for our film. every Netflix subscriber. You know, it might not pop up on their home screen. It might not show up in the, you know, you might like because you watched blank. But, you know, you dig around long enough or if you catch an article or somebody mentions it to you, all you gotta do is just put it in your Netflix search and pops up. So yeah. there's literally potentially hundreds of millions of people who could watch our film. And that's, that's just mind blowing. It's automatic. Yeah. It's automatic. People are conditioned now in a different way to interact with media, you had to go to the movies. Yeah. You don't have to go anywhere anymore. No. You can pause it and get up and make a sandwich and do whatever you want. It's very conducive to the human condition. Yeah. I mean, we try not to think about those realities as filmmakers. We do it, of course, ourselves. But you want the experience. You make a film in a way that you know is best in a particular type of viewing environment. And for us, knowing this was for Netflix, and knowing most people were gonna watch it on their screens, their personal screens, hopefully it's a big television or a projection screen or something. We spent time and money on color correction, and you really need a robust screen in order to really get the sense of those colors and the contrast and the depth of that. We also spent some time and money creating an incredible sound design and sound mix and score. And we worked with some incredible artists that we've worked with many times on other films and shorts and commercials. We mixed at Skywalker Ranch, which is... That's the best. The best, yeah. right? We mixed it so that it would really be powerful in a theatrical setting. Now, yeah. maybe some people have 
home Dolby or 5.1 or even 7.1 surround, but if you're watching it on a smaller screen, it's probably coming out of two speakers. Now, granted, we prepared for that. We think we made something that is powerful on all platforms, but watching it uninterrupted in the dark in a theater is what we really hope happens. We hope as many people see it as possible. Yeah. You're 2.0. This is your second show. I know. You were previously on show number 44 with Kevin Kennerly. 44, right. Is your role with this film company producer? With the guys? With yeah, Zach with and Dre? Yeah, yeah, with those um, dudes. You know, it's not formal. But your role is. I'm a, their producer. Okay. What does that mean? What do you do? It's a little bit of everything, it's keeping the wheels on the track. You're an organizational guy. You make yes. sure all the facilities are lined up. Everything's lined up. The whole it does, time. but I want to make sure that it's lined up to their creative vision. The way I talk about what a producer does is a producer connects dreams to reality. So the creatives, typically the director or a writer, they have a dream. They have an idea, but they don't know how to make that idea real. So a producer helps dreamers make their dreams real. And I help figure out what are the nuts and bolts, what are the practical, real, tangible, physical things that we need to make an idea actually come to life in a filmmaking context. And I have to understand what the potential is with the time and money that we have and really push that to the max. And I have to understand what the creative vision is because when the time and the money isn't quite there, then I want to come up with a way that we can use the time and money that we have and still serve the creative intent. I don't want to have to have anyone I work for change the creative idea because of time and money. And with that comes a lot of phone calls and emails and spreadsheets and calendars. It is in service of what will eventually be a creative final product saying I'm a producer, I'm the producer. That's coming up on almost 20 years. It's fun to be next door to you and see all the buzz, the activity of your film company, Elsewhere Films. Gary, I appreciate you coming in and being on the show again. Thank you for inviting me back. My pleasure. And happy Hanukkah, night number three. Light those candles. Have a good holiday, man. You too. Happy New Year too. Safe travels to you. Thanks very much, I appreciate that. Yang. Yes, Yang, not Yang. Yang is Chinese. Okay, Yang. Yeah. Yang. Yeah. Okay. She is the super sweet girl who works here at the Linkley home. She is a receptionist downstairs. She's got a sparkling personality who's also full of sass. Hi. Do you know what sass means? No. Remember we talked yesterday about sarcasm? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are very sarcastic. Oh. And I think that's because you've been hanging around a lot of foreigners. Yeah. <laughs> and you're 22. Yeah. So how long have you worked at Linkly Home? Maybe seven months. Oh, that's it. Yeah, just seven months. How did you get the job? That is nice memory. That night, beautiful night. I was talk with my aunt about uh, I want to be an English teacher, but it seemed difficult for me. Yeah. You know. And I meet Miss Ling. She's the boss here. And, Where did you uh, meet her? Right there, at the corner of oh, this. Oh, right on the street. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, she asked me, oh, do you want to do a job like uh, talk with foreigner, improve your speaking English skills? I said, okay, yes. So I work here. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, like uh, destiny. <laughs> You're right. It's destiny. Definitely. If you plan on coming to Vietnam, if you plan on coming to Ho Chi Minh City, come check out Linkly Home. Rated a 9.1 on Booking.com. You can find them on Airbnb. I think I've stayed here a total of two weeks. And the hardest thing in Vietnam to find is a comfortable bed. They have very comfortable beds. The sheets are extra clean. There's refrigerators, a sink, wardrobe and a nice bathroom, good shower, good water pressure, hot water. So if you're coming to Vietnam, especially if you're coming to visit me, I'm going to recommend that you come to the Linkley home. And Lynn, who is the owner proprietor, is super sweet, very nice lady. They take very good care of their customers. A lot of foreigners stay here because of the fact that it's super clean. You all know how crazy I am with clean. I gotta have a clean place or I go crazy. So this place has been very good to me. I want to thank you for coming on the show, the Citizen 44 podcast. I want to say how much fun it's been to be here with you at the Linkley Home. And I wish you all the best in your teaching career. Thank you, Mark. You're and, welcome. Uh, with you too. Everyone have a nice day. Bye. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Gary for capturing some incredible human experiences around the fire in paradise. A heartbreaking situation. And we talked more at length about the responsibilities of the power company and what the human race could be doing to eliminate a lot of unnecessary suffering and our unwillingness to do the right thing from the get-go and not allow greed and other things to get in the way of us ensuring that we all can live a safe and reasonable life together. I also want to thank Yang for coming on and saying hello and talking about the Linkley home, which has been my home away from home, the Linkley home. I want to thank Lynn for putting me up and being very sweet to me and taking care of me. And again, if you're coming to Ho Chi Minh City, you're going to visit Vietnam, you're going to come visit me, stay at Linkley home. It's a great space. You won't be disappointed. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. I appreciate you listening to the show. I love making it no matter where I am, but it's certainly interesting doing it away. I spoke to a man, Mike, today who's from England, and we had this incredible conversation at Bookworm Coffee Shop run by Vietnamese people 
they have an incredible variety of vegan options in addition to their non-vegan menu. Super sweet people. This is the place I bought Schindler's List and The Vision, two books, because I ran out of reading material. Thank you again for listening to the show. You can listen at CastBox. Stitcher and iTunes. And if you're going to go to Castbox, please subscribe. It doesn't cost anything and you'll get those notifications when a new show comes about. It's great to be here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I hope to find another job soon. Keep the money flowing. It doesn't take much to do what I need to do here. And that's the beauty of this experience. I cannot afford to be an American in America, but I can afford to be an American living in Southeast Asia. And that's just the way it is. Kamun, which means thank you, and we'll catch you in the next show. To find out more about Gary and all the projects he's working on, check him out online at elsewherefilms.com. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. Yeah. Ah.